Good morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 this morning. As we continue walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the scene has shifted from teaching to miracles. Jesus goes from telling to showing, from teaching to doing. He taught with authority, and now he acts with authority. Last week, in the first part of chapter 8, we saw his authoritative power over disease. And today, we will see his authoritative power over nature. Jesus' miracles confirm his teaching. They back up his claims to his authority. But before we dig into the word of God together, let's pray. Father, we ask that in this time, at this moment, that you would open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts to receive from your word what you have for us this morning. And we need that. We need your help. Please speak through this preacher. May your word go forth in boldness and empower to accomplish its purpose, and we trust you for that. And we depend upon you for all things, and we ask that you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 8, starting in verse 18 and reading through verse 27. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and lead the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word to us this morning. Listen to it. Our theme from our text this morning is that King Jesus has authority over the natural world. King Jesus has authority over the natural world. King Jesus has authority over all sickness and all disease and all uncleanness. That's what we saw last week. And now this week, Jesus has authority over the natural world. And the key question that we always must ask as we go to the Gospels is this. Who is Jesus? Is he simply a good man, a great teacher, a healer, a prophet, a miracle worker, or is he something much more? And that word much more, those words much more mean so much in this passage as we see what Jesus does and as we see what his disciples and how they respond. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? Is he God? Is he the absolutely unique son of God? And the question that everyone must answer today is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Two main points that we're going to look at this morning, and the first one is this, true discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. In verses 18 to 22, we see what true discipleship is. 
And it demonstrates for us what it means to follow Jesus. The word follow is absolutely important. So it says in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, the key here is to see what Jesus says and to see how people respond to him. And so first of all, what Jesus shows us is how two individuals respond to his request or his orders to go to the other side. The question for each of these two men is, will they follow Jesus? And what will they say to Jesus based upon what he said? And the first thing we see in the response of the scribe in verse 19 is that the life of a disciple, discipleship, is a hard life. So don't make a hasty decision. Being a follower of Jesus, true discipleship is a hard life, so don't make a hasty decision. This first man, the scribe, responds to Jesus' orders in a great way. He makes a great profession, exactly the kind of profession that every disciple must make. What does he say? He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the only problem is that he called Jesus teacher. Is he only seeing Jesus simply as a teacher, or is that just an understanding of even some sort of submission as a scribe to a teacher? But the rest of the response is exactly the response that every disciple should have. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the problem isn't so much in what he says, but possibly what's behind that, and that is demonstrated by what Jesus says to him. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus does here is he contrasts what the animals have in their comforts and their provision and their housing compared to what he has, even as the Son of Man. The point is this, he doesn't even have what the animals have. And so if you are going to follow Christ, you need to know what to expect. Expect to be uncomfortable. Expect it to be hard. We have to understand what Jesus has said all throughout the book of Matthew, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, about what discipleship is. The life of a disciple, the life of following Jesus, is hard. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. And so if you understand that, that will make it possible for you to make a good decision about whether you will truly follow Jesus or not. You don't want to hear the call of the gospel, hear the call of discipleship, and respond with a rash or hasty decision. So Jesus says in Luke 14, 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Being a true disciple of Jesus Christ means that we must count the cost. Before choosing to follow Jesus, count the cost. Jesus here is demonstrating really great sympathy and empathy for this man. He is making sure that this man understands what it's going to take and what it's going to look like to follow Jesus. Same thing we would say to each one here this morning, that we do not want any of you to make a rash or hasty decision to respond simply by emotion, to respond simply to the gospel by saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good for me, I'll do that. You must count the cost. You must understand what salvation means, but you also must understand what salvation leads to, and that's the life of being a disciple, and it's a hard life. 
Now, is it hard all the time? Is there no blessing? Is there no comfort? Is there no peace? Are there no blessings? Of course there are. But it's a life filled with blessing and hardship. A life filled with difficulty and comfort. A life filled with sorrow and with the peace of Christ. So don't make a quick decision. Make sure that you know what it takes to follow Jesus. And before we move on to the second response, we need to notice Christ's condescension. See the humility of Jesus Christ in the fact that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has nowhere to lay his head. He has no home. He has no bed. He has no pillow. He has no comfort. He has no place of abode. Now, does that mean that Jesus always slept on the ground or only had a rock for a pillow? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that Jesus didn't own anything. He had left it all behind. And rejoice in the fact that in his humility, Jesus Christ laid aside his glory and all the prerogatives of divinity to glorify the Father and save his people from their sins. And if Jesus Christ leaves everything and comes to this earth in his humility, lays it all aside for us, why do we think that we deserve any better? Why do, you think that, why do we think that we deserve health? Why do we think that we deserve comfort? Why do we think that we deserve a home or that we deserve a bed or that we deserve a pillow? If our Lord and Master had the, did not have these things, why do we think that we should or that we must? Well, we see a second thing about discipleship in the life of the second man or the response of the second man. Secondly, the life of a disciple is a life of submission. It's a life of submission, so don't delay. Now, the second man is willing to follow, but just not right now. So let's see what he says. He said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What he's saying here is that he had, he had family affairs to take care of. He had family business to take care of first. He's going to follow Jesus. He's just going to come at a later time. But Jesus says to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there's a lot of commentaries and, and pastors and preachers that try to understand what this man meant by, let me first go and bury my father. And you can read all those and understand all those on your, on your own. But what I want to point out is I don't want to minimize by explaining away possibly what this man says. Even if this man's father had just died, even if he had not yet been buried, and that's probably not the case. It's probably more the case that he was saying, my father is going to die sometime, and I need to stay and take care of my father's affairs and take care of my family first, and then I'll follow you. But Jesus' response is where we really need to see, and where we really need to focus, and he says, follow me. Follow me. The life of a disciple is a life of submission. You follow Jesus when he commands. You don't get to determine the timing of following him. And what this tells us is that obedience to Christ takes priority over responsibilities to men. Obedience to Christ takes responsibility, takes priority over responsibilities to men, even to our own family, even to our fathers, even to our children, even to our extended family, good things are not the best things. Good things are not the ultimate thing. Only one thing is ultimate, and that is obedience to Christ. So what Christ says we do at no matter the cost. What this sounds like to me is like so many people these days 
who say they will trust Christ later. They'll trust Christ later. They say, well, I'll become a Christian later when I'm older, when, when I've had all my fun, when I've accomplished all I want to accomplish. I don't, I don't want to submit to Christ now. I don't want to live that kind of life now. But later, after, after I get to do everything I want to do, then, then I'll trust Christ. Or even like Christians who say, yeah, I'll, I'll be a missionary Later, I'll go serve Christ full-time ministry when my parents are no longer around or when I've raised my kids or when this time happens or when this specific thing has taken place. Obedience to Christ takes priority over responsibilities to men, even responsibilities to our family. So our family, our human family, our immediate family, the family that God has given us tremendous responsibility for is not ultimate, does not take priority over obedience to Christ. So if at this very moment Jesus Christ said, go here, do this, do that, what would you do? Now at this specific time in our life and history, we have a very scary situation, a situation where people are afraid, where people are panicking, where people are worried about contact with others. But what if Christ called you to care for the sick, to care for the dying? What if Christ called to put your life on the line in the service and ministry to others? Would we say, but what if I get sick? What will happen to my family? Or what if my parents get sick? What, what if, if something happens to me? What if these things take place? What if the worst happens? Lord, I can't take the risk. I have to care for those who are my own. Only if we are willing to follow Christ in all things will we truly be his disciples. Now, it's interesting in the narrative of Matthew chapter 8, why does Matthew include these two responses right now. Well, you can see, first of all, that Jesus had given orders to go to the other side. And then we see the response to going to the other side. It would take some work. It would take leaving family. It would take, it would take some effort to continue to follow Jesus. It's one thing to follow Jesus when he's in your hometown. It's another thing to follow Jesus when he goes someplace else. And then we see in verse 23, he gets into the boat. And what do his disciples do? They followed him. Again, notice that word follow is key to seeing how this is playing out in the narrative. Where Jesus goes, his disciples go. What he does, his disciples do. And the question is, does your life demonstrate that you are truly a disciple? Not in profession only, but in faith demonstrated in action. Are you following Jesus? Are you Submitting to his commands, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it causes you to put other things second, are you following him? That's the life of discipleship. Well, that's the first section in our passage this morning. What about the second section, starting in verse 23? What we see here is real authority and real power. Real authority and real power. And in this narrative about this great storm, we see two responses to the very same circumstance. And so we have to watch how the characters in the story respond to the same circumstance. And it's in watching that and seeing those comparisons that we see the most important things. First of all, we have to notice the main character. And the main character in the Gospels is always Jesus. And then we also need to notice the supporting characters. 
And it's in this comparison that we see what we need to learn the most. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is not troubled by great storms. Jesus is not troubled by great storms. And behold, look, watch, pay attention, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Now, what's so fascinating is on the Sea of Galilee, though it's a very small sea, it's not an ocean, it's, it's more like a very large lake, is that by the shape of the Sea of Galilee, how deep it is and how it's surrounded by mountains, is the idea that storms rose very quickly on the Sea of Galilee. And so you could get in the boat and, and not be concerned about there being any storm, and all of a sudden, storms would come up suddenly, very quickly. And because of the shape of the sea and all those things, the storms could be very, very violent. And the, and, the, and the Word of God is explicit here. It's not just any storm. It's a great storm. It's a storm of tremendous magnitude. Now, how bad is it? Well, you don't have to uh, just look in the Greek and figure that out. You can look at what the Bible says immediately thereafter. So that the boat was being swamped by the waves. They were in grave danger of sinking. They were about to go under, possibly because they had too many people in too small of a boat, and we have a great storm, and so the boat was about to go under. And then notice the contrast. But, but he was asleep. Jesus is not troubled by great storms. What a comfort that is to us today. What a comfort it is to know that our God is not troubled by the storms of life. Our God is not surprised by what takes place. Our God can sleep through the storm. Now the question is, how can Jesus sleep? Why is he sleeping? Well, was he exhausted from all of the things he had been doing earlier in the day? Probably. Was he simply oblivious? Was he just one of those hard sleepers, able to sleep through anything no matter what's going on around them? Well, possibly. But what is fascinating is that this is the only time we have recorded in the Bible that Jesus slept. Does that mean that Jesus never slept any other time? Does that mean that this is the only time only Jesus only sleeps in boats and he only sleeps in storms? No. But I think it tells us that Jesus is asleep on purpose. Was he exhausted? Probably. Was he oblivious? No. Could he sleep through anything? Possibly. But I believe it tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that Jesus is not troubled by any circumstance of the natural world. Jesus is not troubled by any circumstance of the natural world. Why not? Because he is the creator and sustainer of the natural world. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 tell us, this about Jesus. For by him, for by Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is in control. He is in control of all of creation all of the time. What's fascinating is that Jesus could have made it a very quiet trip across the sea. In his power and in his might, he could have kept the storm away. He could have made sure that it was smooth sailing, not a ripple on the water. But he ordained the storm for a reason, a great reason. 
And this points us to the second reason for his sleeping in the storm. Why is he asleep? Because he wants to put his disciples in a dangerous situation. Leave them on their own and see what they do. Jesus gets in the boat, goes across the sea, and on that journey, he ordains for there to be a great storm as a test for his disciples. The two earlier men who were disciples, men who had been following Jesus at least for a time, had their faith tested. Would they follow Jesus no matter where he went? Would they prioritize following Christ even over their own family? And now the other disciples who have been willing to follow him so far, their faith is being tested as well. And how do they respond? Well, first of all, we see that the disciples are afraid. And we see that in verse 26 specifically. Jesus said, why are you afraid? So we know, based upon what Christ says, that these men were afraid. I just have to say, wouldn't you be afraid? Isn't this a proper reaction to a dangerous situation? Isn't it the natural reaction that when you're about to die from drowning to have some fear, maybe great fear? Absolutely. If you're not afraid when your boat is about to sink, maybe there is a little something wrong with you. And so that is perfectly understandable. The fear in this situation is not something that was wrong necessarily. But then I also want you to notice what they do in their fear. The disciples are afraid and turn to Jesus. The disciples are afraid and turn to Jesus. And they went, it says, and woke him. And they went and woke him. What's fascinating here is that a group of men led by serious and experienced fishermen, fishermen who had spent their whole life fishing on this very sea, the Sea of Galilee, turned to a carpenter. In a moment of dire need, in a moment of almost drowning, in a moment of having your boat swamped, as a fisherman, who do you turn to? You turn to a, a carpenter? Well, what's a carpenter going to do? There's probably only one person less qualified to help in this situation, and that was the tax collector, Matthew. What is a carpenter going to do for you on the sea when you're about to drown and your boat is about to be sunk? Well... What we see and what we can understand from the text is that this is exactly the right response. Turning to Jesus was exactly the right response. What should we do when we're afraid? What should we do when we're afraid? The Bible never says to never have any fear. The Bible says don't be afraid when we already are afraid. In Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4 some of my favorite verses, verses I teach my kids, and this is how, why we respond and try to respond the way we do when we are afraid. And it says in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, then I will not be afraid. Times of fear come because times of danger come. The question is, when you are afraid, what will you do? And what will happen so that you are no longer afraid? Now, they don't turn to Jesus because he's a fisherman. They turn to Jesus because he isn't a fisherman. They turn to Jesus because he's a man with authority and power. They turn to him because they are perishing. 
They're perishing. And when your life is in danger, you don't want a fisherman, you don't want a carpenter, you want a savior. You want a God who is in control of all things. So Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Now the big question is, is Jesus rebuking them for their fear? Or is he simply highlighting their fear? They've already told him why they're afraid. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. So when he says, why are you afraid? They they could have said, well, we just told you we're we're about to drown. We're about to die. That's why we're afraid. So I don't think Jesus is is asking the question because he didn't know or didn't understand or, 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 or didn't hear. I believe Jesus is highlighting their fear to highlight his lack of fear. Why are you afraid and I am not afraid? What is amazing and and missed by so many of us as we read through this passage, missed by me and the many times I read through this, what is amazing is not the disciples' fear, but Jesus' lack of fear. What kind of man is not afraid at a time like this? And that's what's so amazing about him sleeping. Is in the Old Testament specifically, we see the idea of sleep being connected to trust. Sleep being connected to trust in God. In the worst of circumstances, God's people are able to sleep because they can sleep because they're not in control, but God is. They're not going to solve the situation, but God is. And when those of us humans have no power, no ability, no opportunity to control or take care of the situation ourselves, we can simply sleep because the God of the universe will do it while we sleep. It's fascinating. It's amazing to think that Jesus sleeps because he's trusting the Father to care for him. He's trusting that God will take care of him. He can sleep through a storm, not because there's no reason to be afraid, but when he is afraid, he trusts in the Father as we should trust in the Father. It's interesting what Matthew Henry says about this part of the passage. He says, they who would learn to pray must go to see. What, is it? what does he mean by that? Well, the next sentence explains it. Imminent and sensible dangers will drive people to him who alone can help in time of need. Imminent and sensible dangers will drive people to him who alone can help in time of need. The fishermen, I'm sure, had tried to save themselves. They tried to take care of the boat. They tried to save, but they couldn't. And so they had to turn to Jesus. And so if you really want to learn how to pray, You must face dangers. Now, is this saying put yourself in dangerous situations so that you can learn to pray? Is it say do dangerous things so that you can become a great prayer warrior? No. But we learn to pray when we face grave, imminent, and sensible dangers. Dangerous times should grow our prayer life. So we face a dangerous time. If you aren't praying more Now, when will you pray more? If you aren't turning to Christ now, when will you turn to Christ? In a time where we are out of control, at a time when we can't even see the danger around us, at a time when going out and making contact and going to the store and going shopping and touching the gas pump, anywhere we go, we could come in contact with a virus, a virus that could kill us or kill those we pass it along to. 
in dangerous times, we should learn to pray more. And if we're not doing that now, when will we? The disciples are afraid, and they turn to Jesus. But it's more than that. The disciples have little faith and ask Jesus to save them. The disciples have little faith and ask Jesus to save them. So not only did Jesus say, why are you afraid? In verse 24, he also said, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Now we read Jesus' words as a rebuke. And, and they probably are to some extent. And we read them as a rebuke because we think they should have had great faith based upon the miracles that Jesus had just done. We believe that we would have had great faith. Well, if I was there, if I was in the boat, I wouldn't have been afraid. I would have, I would have had great faith in Christ. I would not have been terrified. But more than see what they lacked, one of the things I want you to see is I want to see what they had. They had little faith, and in their little faith, they did exactly the right thing. They asked Jesus to save them. Back to verse 25. So they turned to Jesus. They went to Jesus and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. Save us, Lord. Even though their faith was little, and it's probably more like their faith was of poor quality. They had some faith. They had, they had a right trust in Christ to a certain extent, but they did not have the right kind of faith all the way through. But even with this little faith of poor quality, they do the right thing, the, exactly the right thing. They turn to Jesus and ask him to save them. So, at this current storm in our lives, are we asking Jesus to save us? Are we turning to Jesus in this time? Well, well why would I turn to Jesus? Jesus is not a doctor. He's not a scientist. He's not the government. That's who we need to be trusting in now. We need to be trusting in people who are going to come up with cures and, and, and ways to, to fight off the disease and, and ways to inoculate ourselves against the disease. We need to trust in government to, to meet our financial needs. We, we need to turn to each other and, and help each other out. And, and through all of this, we can beat the disease. We can beat the virus. We can, we can win, and we will win. That's what we hear. But Jesus was not a fisherman or a boat captain. And yet these men turn to Jesus. And Jesus is not a doctor or a scientist, so what can he do? Well, what's fascinating is that the very reasons we wouldn't turn to Jesus are all of the reasons that we should turn to Jesus. He's not a fisherman. He's not a captain. He's not the lifeguard or the coast guard. He's, he's no one that can, in his humanity, as a man, save anyone from drowning. But he's not just a man. And that's why you should turn to him. And Jesus is not a scientist or a doctor or a medical professional or a part of the government. And that's exactly why we should turn to him. Because in these times of grave and great danger, there is no rescue or no salvation for man. Only Jesus will save us. That's why we should turn to him. What's even more detrimental and more frightening is not a virus. It's not a disease. It's not all these other things that we fear so often in our lives. Not drowning, not fire, not hurricane. The thing we should fear the most is God's judgment on us because of the virus of sin that lives in all of us. All of us were born sinners with a sin nature. 
disease in our hearts from the moment before we took our first breath. And ultimately, that is the gravest of all dangers for every person on the planet. And who can save us from our sin? Who can save us from the virus and disease of sin in our hearts? Only Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived the perfect life, the one who went to the cross and died the sacrificial death in the place of all who would trust in him to save his people from their sin and to provide a way so that every person who trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone who turns to him and cries out for salvation will be saved. Every person who says, Lord, save us, will be saved as they trust in him. Now, it cannot be the cry of the soldier in the foxhole. It cannot be the cry of the person on their deathbed. Lord, save us just for this moment. Lord, just get me through this. It must be the salvation that comes when we trust in Jesus Christ alone, not only as the Savior from this circumstance, but as a Savior from our greatest enemy, sin. So turn to Jesus and find him to be a willing Savior to save you, not necessarily from the circumstance, though he can, but most importantly from your sin. Now, let's turn and look again at what Jesus does and who Jesus is. Jesus is able to calm the greatest storm. Jesus is able to calm the greatest storm. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. It's amazing, isn't it? Immediate dead calm. From a raging storm about to sink a boat and drown these men to immediate dead calm. Not one wave, not one ripple, not one leftover breeze. Everything goes immediately still. How is that possible? Because even when the storms pass, the waves continue to beat for hours. Because the water has been stirred up, how can everything go from a tremendous storm to dead calm? There's only one way that can happen, and that is the God of the universe, who not only created every molecule in the universe, is the very same one who is now upholding every molecule in the universe, and he has stopped them in their tracks. Unbelievable power, unimaginable authority. When Jesus chooses to act, This is what he does. He can stop this virus in its tracks. No more sick people ever. He can kill it. He can eradicate it with just a thought, with just a word. It can be done. Jesus is able to calm the greatest storm because of who he is. So in these moments of great storm and of great danger, don't ever forget that no matter the storm in your life and in our lives, Jesus can turn it into a dead calm whenever he chooses. Trust in him. Look to him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to look to Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus because of who he is, because of what he does. And what's really highlighted in this passage 
is even just in the last verse. The disciples don't understand who Jesus really is. They don't understand who Jesus really is. And so, in verse 27, it says, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, they got it right. It's obedience. The winds and waves obey him because Jesus has authority over nature. Real authority, real power. It's not just a power to to work miracles. It's real authority that gives him power and authority over every molecule in the universe. So even though they understand Jesus' authority over creation, they know his power over creation, they still think of him as only a man. What sort of man is this? The play on words is startling. These men consider what kind of man Jesus is. Now, again, they have it right. Jesus is a man. And we're not diminishing Jesus' humanity at all in this passage. We see tremendous signs of Jesus' humanity. He sleeps. And he is a man. And they get something else right, even in their ignorance. They realize he's more than a man. He's more than a great teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than than any of the things that people thought he was. He's more than that. Now the question is, do you know how to answer the questions? Or the question here, what sort of man is this that even wins and see obey him? Do you know the answer? We've already talked about it numerous times in this message. He is the God man. He is divine. He is God in human flesh. We are only human. Jesus is human, but he's far more than human. He's also 100% divine. Fully God and fully man in one person forever. So this highlights the problem with their faith. Their faith problem was not in doubting his ability to calm the storm. They believed he could calm the storm. That's why they ran to him. That's why they asked him to save us, save them from the storm. But the problem with their faith is that they were doubting that he was the Messiah. They didn't understand his divinity. They didn't understand his mission. They didn't have faith that he was in control of the situation. As Jewish men who understand the Bible, they would have fully understand God's power over the seas. Read Psalm 89. Read Psalm 107. Remember what Jesus just taught in Matthew 7 when he talked about the men who built their house on the rock and on the sand. When, when the winds came and the rains fell and, and the floods came, what, what happens to the man who's built his, his house on, on Christ and on his words? So they should have known more than, that they, than they knew. They should have believed more than they believed, and that's why their faith was deficient. They believed him to be able to, to save them from the storm, but they weren't trusting him as the God of the universe. They weren't trusting him as the God over the seas. They didn't understand his divinity. They weren't trusting in him as the creator God of the universe, the one with absolute authoritative power over all creation. They were still thinking of him as a man and not as God. So in this passage, especially in this stormy passage, we see something very important. And I love the way D.A. Carson uh, puts it. Faith chases out fear, or fear chases out faith. 
We are living at a time when fear can overwhelm us. There is a reason to be afraid. There is real reason to take real precautions. But we cannot allow that fear to chase out our faith. We must allow faith to chase out our fear. This is why we follow Jesus. This is why we are the disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only God of the creation. He's the only Savior from the storms of life, but even more than that, he's the only Savior from eternal judgment for sin in a place called hell. He is the all-powerful, sovereign God who controls and holds all things together, including every molecule in the universe. So trust in him. When you are afraid, trust in him. When you are afraid, turn to him. Cry out to him. Cry out to be saved. Trust him to save you. We thank God for government. We thank God for scientists. We thank God for doctors. They are people that God has put in place to do his will. But they will never save us. Only God can save us ultimately from sin, but even from every storm of life that comes. So this is our opportunity. We know more than the disciples knew. We've got all of the scripture. We have all of the information that we need. We know more and we should have better faith. We should know that Christ is more than a man and we should trust in him for everything that we need at this time. Jesus has authority over nature And so follow him, trust in him. Do not be afraid, but trust in Jesus.